James 1, verse 12 says, James 1, 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. When we go through trials, that's often how we feel. We feel under them. We feel like they're weighty. They're pressing us down. In fact, the word that for perseverance is hupomone, and it literally means to remain under. It means to stand your ground even though you are going through something tough. On Wednesday night, uh, we've shifted to the book of 2 Peter. And among a group of characteristics that Peter says you should be adding to your spiritual life, he talks about perseverance. And I gave a definition of perseverance I want to give to you this morning. And that is this. Perseverance means to hang in there with hope. You might want to write that down. Perseverance means to hang in there with hope. Because when someone's going through something difficult, you know, our standard line might be something like this. Just hang in there, man. Hang in there, bud. Hang in there, girl. Well, it's one thing just to tell somebody to hang in there. It's another thing to say, hang in there with hope. Because the Christian perseveres with hope. What is our hope? We know God is gonna work everything together for good. We know that God has a plan. We know that even though David had to leave his physical throne and depart from the city of David, God had not left his throne, amen? Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. In a tough moment for the prophet, when a good king had died, he got a vision of the Lord, and the Lord was seated on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In a, in a tough year, you know, when someone dies, it's tough. When a good king dies, for Isaiah, it was difficult. And what did he get? He got a vision that the Lord had not left his throne. David had left his physical throne. His son was going to try to sit on that throne. But David was still the king. And God had a plan, and Absalom would not become the king. But David had to go through the trial. And this is something that God promised David. Because of what he had done, he was going to have to go through these things. And they were going to be difficult and challenging. I want you to see in James 1.12, though, James pronounces a blessing on those who what? Who persevere under trial. For once he has been approved, this person who goes through the trial, hanging in there with hope, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Something similar in James 1.2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, James 1.2, when you encounter various trials, knowing, this is what you can know, that the testing of your faith produces, what does it produce? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. The word consider is not an automatic. It seems it's an arrived at mindset. You have to consider it this way. You have to look at it this way. You have to re-look at it this way. And it's hard. Because when you're going through a trial, imagine a uh, court trial. Let's just imagine for a second, just by way of illustration, that you were on trial for something. That, that's a difficult thing, right? Whether you're innocent or guilty, let's just assume for the moment that you've been falsely accused and you're innocent and you're going through a court trial. 
That's the heaviest time in people's lives. And a literal trial in your life, a spiritual trial, if you will, as you go through it, can be tough. And the mindset is you need to consider it this way because of the end result, not necessarily the process, but the end result. Amen. You have to have long term thinking in your trials. And I would tell you, I'm the first to be guilty about short term thinking in my trials. In my trials, this is usually what I'm saying. Get this over with now, please. Give me patience, but hurry. Amen? And God doesn't have the same mindset, so he gives us these scriptures that we can hang in there when we're going through stuff. Flip over a little bit to your right to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. Peter's talking about trials here, and he's writing to a suffering, persecuted church, and he says these words. He says, he's talking about the fact that they are protected by the power of God in verse 5, 1 Peter 1, 5. God's got you. He's got you protected. But he says in 1, 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, apparently some trials are necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think the thought here is that when you stand before the Lord, part of the reward is going to be how you persevered through trials. How you hung in there with hope how you tried to keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. One more I want to show you. It's the book of Romans, a little bit back now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 5, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're secure in him, but we're going to go through stuff. And Paul makes it a little bit more difficult because he talks about your attitude through the trial. This is where I am greatly challenged. I'll just confess it. Romans 5, verse 3 says, and not only this, Romans 5, 3, but we also exult or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing, and here's why we can rejoice, knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. And perseverance is, brings proven character. Think about a trial is supposed to put, literally, a trial in Greek means to put to the proof to prove what's there, that this perseverance would uh, produce proven character, and proven character brings what? Hope, and perseverance, I gave you a definition, means to hang in there with hope, and that hope will not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us, and by the way, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our future redemption. He is the down payment. He is what God has given to us, the third person of the Holy Trinity, guaranteeing that what God started in you, he will complete. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. By the way, the day of Christ is the day of the Lord. Until he comes back, he's gonna finish what he started in you. And so there's, a, there's attitude here. We're supposed to, Rejoice in our tribulation. How many of you have seen those silly commercials? I think it's for a, it's a 
TV or cable thing where people are doing things that normally would be disastrous, like spilling hot coffee on themselves, sitting on gum, running into a window with food, and they start cracking up. Somebody's banging into the back of them with a shopping cart, and they're like, (laughs) and you're like, what? Now, there's going to be Super Bowl commercials on today, right? So you guys, there'll there'll be some new ones, but here's the deal. That seems so silly to us, and the idea of rejoicing in tribulation seems, I don't know about for you, but for me, it seems almost like sitting on gum and laughing about it. Or stepping in gum and going, <laughs> what? I don't think the Bible's saying that we're supposed to be phony in our trials. I think God already knows that our natural response is going to be, this is a bummer. What happened? Why? But I think the constant idea in Scripture is to know that God is on his throne, he's working, and you can hang in there with hope. Now, we're not gonna make light of trials because we know that when we go through a trial, it's very difficult. If you turn over to 2 Samuel, and we'll come to the end of chapter 15, it's hard. And I don't think the Bible's telling us to be phony. I think the Bible is saying to us, though, to make sure you include God in the mindset of your trials. Make sure that he's in the equation when you're assessing how you'll respond. Because the truth of the matter is, sometimes when a trial comes, we don't do real well. And it causes us to look in the mirror and say, What is my faith really based on? Am I a circumstantial Christian? Am I a Christian only when things are good? My bank account's good. I'm being treated well at work. Everything's good in my family. I feel good and healthy. Look, those are all the things that we all want. But when they're not, God's doing something. In fact, in our trials, God is proving our faith and stretching our faith and making us more dependent on him, which makes us more like him because we need him more when we're in the trials. So God's, one of God's tools in the tool shed is trials. If I had a vote, I wouldn't vote for it. I, I'm gonna tell you right now. I'd prefer smooth sailing, but I know that I tend to grow the most when I'm in trials. And so Jesus said to the apostles, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, Luke 2.28. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, this is actually Luke 22:28 through 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Did the apostles have trials after Jesus went back to heaven? Oh yeah. They had to deal with False teaching, false apostles, persecution, and 11 of the 12 apostles apparently died a martyr's death. And that was his hand-picked apostles, you guys. The Christian way is not necessarily the easy way, but it's the blessed way. And it's a big picture life. It's not just about the here and now. My son is going to Biola, and he said he's in the, he was sharing with me, he's in a philosophy class, and 
they played a little clip by Jim Carrey, famous actor, comedian. I don't know if any of you saw this clip, but he showed up at uh, some Hollywood event and an interviewer began to interview him on the black carpet. Uh, there was, there was uh, whatever they call it, the red carpet. It, I think it was black. I think, I, I'll tell you this, Jim, Jim Carrey had a black attitude, a dark attitude. And here's why. He showed up there and he said, oh, she said, oh, good to see you here. And he said, oh, I just decided to find the most meaningless event that was happening and attend it. She goes, well, what do you mean? Oh, this is all meaningless. Everything we're doing here is meaningless. In fact, I'm just a field of energy. Something or someone or whatever gave me a name and a personality, but none of this is real. You're not real. She's not real. He's not real. Nothing's real. <laughs> so this began to circulate around some of the news agencies, and they were trying to figure out if he was serious or not. And he looked angry and depressed and... And he tried to clarify what he meant in a later interview. And pretty much what he said is what he meant. He has no hope, no meaning. He doesn't know what life is really about. Now, this is Jim Carrey. You would think if you hung out with Jim Carrey one night, it'd be a pretty fun night. Uh -uh. Because what philosophers and authors and people who have gotten to the top of the mountain with fame and fortune, and you would think hanging out with a comedian like Jim Carrey would be a lot of fun. And do you know what? Based upon that interview and interviews afterwards, he's a miserable wreck. You know why? He doesn't know what life's about. He's got success. He's got fame. He's got money. And he thinks he's a field of energy that something somewhere gave him a personality and nothing's real, life's an illusion. What? You see, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about worldview. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about whether or not you know the God who made you. You know what truth is. You know what life's about. You know what a transcendent cause is. Everybody with me? This is real life. And if you don't, have a transcendent cause, and you don't know the truth which Jesus said would set you free, you will be bound by these silly philosophies that will take you nowhere. They're a dead end. That's all they are. Now, David, in the trial of his life, we pick up the story as he is crossing the Kidron. Uh, this is verse 23, 2 Samuel 15. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, 15, 23, all the people uh, passed over or crossed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. They were headed probably in the direction of Jericho. And so one thing I wanted to share with you is I'm just going to give you some little nuggets is trials help us to pass over with further dependence on God. Do you think Trials help us to pass over thresholds with further dependence on God. Do you think that David maybe had taken for granted his throne? Do you think that maybe David had taken for granted that he'd wake up every day in Jerusalem and that everything would be the same? I think so. I think for a while when we get comfortable and we get in a routine, and David was even in Jerusalem when kings normally were at war, that's when he got himself in trouble with Bathsheba. I think he began to take for granted his throne and everything that God had given him. He had forgotten who he was. And now, with this great trial, 
There's a lot of psalms that are credited to this time. I, I shared Psalm 3 with you last Sunday, which its heading says when David was running, through, running from Absalom. That's when he wrote it. Sometimes God will produce in us things that even help others. He will comfort us in all our trials or all our struggles. He's the God of all comfort so that we can comfort others who are going through their own trials. So it's just more than just our own internal uh, maturation. It's also that we can help minister to others. So trials can help mature you, but then they can help you minister to others. I mentioned to you the Kidron Valley marked a boundary going outside the city of Jerusalem. You're heading east towards the Mount of Olives. A heavy time for everyone. David's heavy walk across the Kidron Valley is steps that Jesus would actually take the night that he was betrayed. They're uh, gapped by a thousand years. And when Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley, which is John 18, 1, he headed into the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally is a name for an olive press. It's a part of the olive press. Here's what happens. They take olives and they throw them into something that's called a sea or a round basin. And then with something like basalt rock, pulled by a beast of burden like a donkey, what happens is the, the large round stone begins to crack the olives open. And then literally a Gethsemane, which is kind of a rectangular shaped, almost like pillar, smashes the olives and through out the, the bottom of this contraption runs the olive oil. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And Luke records that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood to the ground. Here's the picture. The Gethsemane was coming down on Jesus in Gethsemane. And he was the, the precious olive, if you will, preparing to deal with the horrors of the cross, which he was recoiling from. And David walked that same walk. He walked out of the city, crossed the Kidron Valley, which means murky or uh, dark or gloomy, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's interesting, scholars believe that the Garden of Gethsemane may have been a place that David regularly prayed. Isn't that interesting? They, maybe Jesus picked this spot because that's where David prayed. And Jesus was the greater is the greater David. And interestingly enough, there are some sources that believe that David wrote Psalm 23 in light of Absalom's rebellion and the crossing of the Kidron. And I want you to hold that thought, turn to that famous psalm. Let's read it in light of this information and see what we see here. Psalm 23 it's a psalm of David. You all know it probably really well. But with some, maybe just a little different perspective, let's read it together. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. And if you want to say it with me, you can. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Let's pause for a second. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death, do you know that there's some sources that believe the valley of the shadow of death is the Kidron Valley? There's a cemetery there. There was a lot of death that went on around the Kidron. And in fact, the blood of the sacrifices that were sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem ran down through a drain into the Kidron Valley. So it was kind of a valley of blood, a place of death. It means gloomy, dark, murky. Could it be that David wrote Psalm 23 as he was running from Absalom? And he said, verse four, I will walk through, he crossed the Kidron, I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The death is not the end. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David is under the disciplinary hand of God right now, but he knows he's finding comfort in the fact that God is doing it for his purposes. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Absalom had become an enemy. Food is going to be brought to David by Ziba in the wilderness. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then let's read verse 6 together. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you turn back to 2 Samuel? Interesting, isn't it, to just see what the backdrop may well be as David wrote these famous words. David was going through the trial of his life, but God was his focus. And that's what I want to say to you this morning, that when you're going through a trial, and you may be in one right now, and if you're not in one, you'll be in one soon. (laughs) Amen? It's kind of how life is, right? That we try to zero in on God as we go through these times of trial. Now, uh, in 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to have to move through the account uh, quickly because you all know that Pastor Michael has gotten through one of the verses that we're supposed to be covering this morning. So, verse 24, chapter 15. Now, behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him carrying, and I want you just to notice, at least they had learned their lesson. They were carrying now the Ark of the Covenant of God. Remember, they brought it in on a cart in chapter 6, and Uzzah tried to steady it when uh, it was kind of wobbling, and... uh, It killed him. God killed him because they didn't do things the proper way. The Levites were to carry the ark on poles. We've been through that before. They've learned their lesson. All it takes is one of your companion Levites to die, and I think you get it. Anyway, they set down the ark of God. So they had taken the ark out of the city, which represented God's presence. It's the ark of the covenant of God, God's covenant with Israel, his covenant with his people. God is a covenant-keeping God. And Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. It brought the ark out like they would in times of battle as a a blessing representing God's presence. But you can't put God in a box, literally. The ark was the only piece of furniture, by the way, that was in the Holy of Holies. And God said, I will meet with you above the mercy seat. And in the ark was the Ten Commandments and There was the jar of manna and the uh, staff of Aaron that had budded. And you think about just what this means. God says, I'll meet with you there. 
And the significance of having the ark would have been comforting, I think, to me to know that this piece of furniture represented God's presence. But notice what the king says. He says, 25, the king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city, i.e. where it belongs. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. David says, take the ark back. I think that's an incredible act of faith. Put the ark where it belongs. And if God is gracious to me, and the word grace here is the same we understand in the New Testament. If he gives me unmerited favor, if he's benevolent towards me, I will see it again. I will return again and see the city and see the ark again. I will see the place wherein God, it's set up for God's holy dwelling, if you will. David was hopeful that God would bring him back. And he was hopeful because God is a God of grace. Psalm 30, verses four through six says, Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones. Give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Psalm 30, verses four through six. David, all the people were weeping. Weeping may last for a night, but joy, it comes in the morning. But David says, 26, if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, let's say that God decides he doesn't want to show me grace. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Do you think David's faith is growing? David says, send the ark back. I'm not going to use the ark as some magical good luck charm. It's going to be where it belongs because I believe that God is with me and he will never leave me or forsake me. The Lord is with me. His rod and staff are comforting me right now. Bring the ark back. Let God do to me what he sees fit. Jesus in the garden, same basic area. Father, I want the cup to pass from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. Father, can I put it this way? Do what seems, do to me what seems best to you. I submit to you. Do you see how David is foreshadowing Jesus? Have you come to the point, it's a hard point to come to, where you might be in a trial and you want something to go a certain way? We all do. We all have our hopes. We all You know, we have a direction that we'd like to see God move. But can you say, Lord, just do what seems best to you? That's faith. Faith is not treating God as though he is some bellhop in the sky that you order around. I know some preachers are trying to tell you that. That's a lie. God is God. You are not. If you want to change positions with him, good luck. But he's God, he's Lord. And David has resigned himself incredibly to say, I know what I want, but let the Lord do what seems good to him. Let God be God. I know his plans are good. This is an incredible statement. I think David has grown a ton 
The king said, also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? 27, return to the city in peace, you and your two sons with you, your son Ahamaz and Jonathan, the son of Apiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. David was also trying to be wise. He knew he needed some people loyal to him back in the city. And this would probably convince Absalom that these two priests were on his side, which many people were converting over. And David, 30, went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. His head was covered. You can imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the heaviness, with the cries and tears and asking for the Father to remove the cup. Head covered. David's head was covered. He walked barefoot. Both signs of grief and despair. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. There were thousands of people crying. It was a it was a procession of tears because they all were wondering what was going to happen. They all were anticipating a bloody civil war. They were all looking at the heart of the king saying, can you believe it? His own son. And many people knew that God was taking David to the woodshed and that the bigger picture was the sovereignty of God and that God had told David, because of what you've done, you're going to have some trials. Climbing up the mountain of trials is taxing, isn't it? It seems like, you know, when we're going up a mountain of trials, if you will, it seems like it, it just keeps going and going. Tears flowed that day, many tears. The Bible says A.W. Tozer was written in tears and to tears it will yield its best treasures, close quote. Tears are often a sign that Something deep's going on, and the Bible even says God holds our tears in his bottle. Now, someone told David 31, as they're all going up in this heavy procession, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, can you imagine this? It's heavy. Everybody's crying. You're going up the Mount of Olives. You're wondering if you're ever going to see the city again. Maybe you're going to die at the hands of your own son. You've just, you know, resolved yourself to put it all in God's hands. The ark has gone back. It's a heavy time. You don't know what's going to happen. And then someone comes up to you to make matters worse and says, your own trusted advisor, the guy you leaned on for wisdom, he has jumped ship and is part of the coup. He's with Absalom now. This would be like a guy who was your mentor, who you found out now was with your enemy. Can David go take any more? You know, sometimes when we're going through trials, we're like, Lord, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, I am hanging on by a thread. I can't take any more bad news right now. Hey, David, Ahithophel has jumped ship as well. Now, David could have just fallen on the ground and started beating the ground like an angry child. <laughs> no, no, but David said, O Lord, 31, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Ahithophel, David's highly esteemed counselor, defected. What do you do when someone close to you, a confidant, betrays you? 
David prayed, worshiped. John 13, 18 says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread has lifted up his heel against me. A quotation, John 13, 18 is quoting Psalm 41, 9. Psalm 41, 9 is what David wrote during this time. And in Jesus's lifetime, what was said of Ahithophel is applied to Judas. There's a dual fulfillment in the psalm. A thousand years later, get this, Ahithophel gives advice to Absalom that he should go and, and battle with his dad now while his dad's weak and uh, susceptible. And Ahithophel gives counsel. Absalom does not take the counsel. And Ahithophel, as a result of that, went out and hung himself. And Judas Iscariot did the exact same thing a thousand years later. Wow. This is the Bible. The majesty of how God puts these things together prophetically, it's incredible. It happened as David was coming to the summit. So now he prays, Lord, make Ahithophel's uh, counsel foolishness, he comes up to the summit. At the summit of the Mount of Olives, you get a great uh, view of the city. We have 50 of us are going to Israel. Uh, we're going to be there from March 8th to the 18th, so we're leaving soon. And when we, we're going to be able to take this, this walk, and it's kind of the Palm Sunday type of walk in opposite direction. And when you get to the Mount of Olives, you look back and you can see a beautiful picture of the city. David's at the summit, so he can look back at the city and probably wonder, you know, what's going to happen. He came to the summit where God was worshipped. This is where many believe David prayed there. That behold, Hushai the archite met him with, the coat, with his coat torn and dust on his head. Now, I just want to pause for a second and just tell you that David prayed and Hushai was the answer to David's prayer. Here's why. Hushai is going to go back into the city. He's going to pretend like he's on Absalom's side and he's going to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. David prayed and in the next moment, the answer to his prayer was there. We didn't even know where Hushai the archite came from, but his name means quick and apparently he was quick. And I'm not kidding. That's what his name means. This dude was quick. Lord, let the counsel of Ahithophel be foolishness and Hushai, woof, there. Praise the Lord. That's probably why his coat was torn. He was moving so fast. <laughs> Just kidding. He would have torn his clothes as an expression of grief. Dust was on his head because they would throw dust on their head as an expression of grief. This was a heavy time for everybody connected to David. Trials tend to get, trials get hard, but things tend to level out at the top of the summit. Amen? You know, we do, we climb and we go, sometimes we, we get a little breath up there, like, okay, whew. here's Hushai the archite, man. Man, you're quick. <laughs> hey, can you go do this for me? Oftentimes, God will bring people into our trials that will be part of his answer to our prayers. By the way, God can answer prayers when you're in exile. When you're wandering in the wilderness, even though the ark's not there, God was there. 
David said to him, if you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. We, we can't afford to feed anybody extra here. We got next to nothing. In what way would he be a burden? Maybe some people think he was old, but I think it's just extra bodies. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom 34, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. You know, when you trust in God, it doesn't mean you don't do practical things. <laughs> you are not setting aside the sovereignty of God in your life by doing practical things even after you prayed. If you need a job, pray and then go look for a job. <laughs> Lord, when they knock on my door, I'll know, sitting in your lazy boy. In your... <laughs> That's not gonna work. You pray and you plan and you do practical things. And David is kind of setting up a spy network here. You say, well, that, that's not right. Well, his son's trying to usurp his throne. I think he, <laughs> some defensive moves are in order. He says, are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahamaz and Zadok's son and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So David's got a network of moles, if you will. And so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city and Absalom came into the city. Now, it's a good thing Hushai was quick because it seems like this happened back to back. And it was only about a mile to get back to the city. And maybe Hushai quickly, since he was quick, cleaned up himself and got himself together, and Absalom came into the city. And here's part of the picture. David's whole group is only just over the hill. If Absalom just kept riding, he would have devastated probably the whole group. Although David did have warriors with, her, but, with him, but it would have been difficult. Now, when, they, when David passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple saddled donkeys. NIV says, says a string of donkeys, and it may well be. And on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, and 100 summer fruits and a jug of wine. Ziba shows up with provisions. They had to leave the city quickly, so this would be a welcome thing. The king said to Ziba, verse 2, chapter 16, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. And he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. He didn't come, king, because he believes that God's going to restore it back to his own family, the family of Saul. That's why he's not here. By the way, Ziba is not telling the truth. Later, Mephibosheth will tell David that Ziba didn't let him come. He kind of tricked him. So Ziba's trying to position himself. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth, oh, that's the way it's going to be, if you will, <laughs> is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord, the king. Mephibosheth tells David later, this is not what happened. Don't make snap decisions in trials. Write that down. Don't make snap major decisions in trials, especially when you don't have all the information. Not good. Oh, you know what? Okay, that's the way it's going to be, Mephibosheth. Then guess what, Ziba? 
All his stuff is yours now. How you like that? <laughs> but that wasn't the case. Ziba was trying to position himself in all of this. Don't make snap decisions without all the information when you're in trials. Now, when you're in a trial, you have to make some decisions, obviously, but just be careful. Now, when King David came to Baharim, verse 5, Behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. Now, if things aren't bad enough, here comes this dude, and he's on another ridge opposite and maybe above David, and he comes out and starts cursing up a storm. I don't know what he was saying, but we're going to get a little bit of it, but he began not only cursing, but he was throwing stones at David, verse 6, and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Everybody's weeping and crying. David's getting information. Ziba comes up with some resources. But then, you know, all of this is happening. Mephibosheth apparently has jumped ship as well. There's the, the coup is on. And here's Shammai up with the stones. David! Get this right! David! You're like, oh my goodness. There's women and children. The warriors come to the right and left of David. Spiritual warfare gets hot in trials. The enemy goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Lies from Ziba, stones from Shammai. The enemy is a liar. That's what Ziba did. He lied to David. You need your shield of faith and you need your belt of truth and you especially need them in times of trial, Amen. Make sure you're suited up. If you need more on that, there's a book called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God by Pastor Michael Lance. It's available <laughs> for three easy payments. No, I'm just... Don't you love how they always say easy payments? When you're making the payments, then it's easy, right? Anyway, thus Shammai, verse 7, said, we're almost done, when he cursed, get out, get out. This had to hurt David. He was already getting out. Get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. Here's how we might say it. You murderer! You fool! Throwing rocks at David. Now, if you're David and you got some good warriors next to you, you're like, oh, forget about the rocks, boys. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. He believes that he's responsible probably for the death of Ishbosheth and Abner, but David wasn't, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into your hand of your son Absalom, and behold, you are taken in your own evil. You are a murderer. You're a man of bloodshed. Can you imagine being David right now? You're like, oh, it's coming from every direction. Shammai curses David. And Abishai, the son of Zuriah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Gotta love these soldiers, right? Let me go over there now and cut off his head. He's doing a lot of barking. But if you let me at him, he will be a silent dog. In a few short moments, what do you say, king? <laughs> you imagine being David. You know, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. He is doing a lot of barking and rocks are coming our way. Let me just cut off his head. Come on, king. And the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zuriah? 
If he curses and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and all, to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Look, I'm not worried about this guy. My own kid's trying to kill me. Let him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction. Um, one of the possibilities of the Hebrews look on my tears and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. David thought that maybe Shammai was part of what God was doing. I don't know for sure. But he let him rant on. He left him alone. What a hard thing when people are throwing stones at you. Part of the process of persevering through adversity is to trust that some way, somehow, in God's time, he is going to exploit all of this for his good purposes. You don't have to figure out who's behind everything. You just have to find a place of trust. And so David and his men went on the way, and Shammai went along on the hillside parallel with them, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. And David, maybe at this point, said something like this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, you've been called for this purpose. It's not a verse that you put on your refrigerator, but here it is. Christ left you an example. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And in our trials, that's what we have to do, as hard as it can be. And believe me when I tell you, I've not always handled my trials well. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. We're gonna prepare for communion. After trials come, times of refreshing can come from the Lord, Acts 3.19. And you might ask, well, what did David refresh himself with? It says they were all weary. They arrived at the fords here, which we'll find out a little bit more about next time. And David refreshed himself there. What did he have to refresh himself? Well, they were physically and emotionally poured out, so times of refreshing come from the Holy Spirit. But go back to verse 2 of chapter 16. What did Ziba bring? He brought donkeys. He brought bread, summer fruit, and what? And wine. Do you know that the night that Jesus, before he crossed the Kidron, he took bread and wine and he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. Wow. And part of how David refreshed himself in the wilderness, you know, kind of in these geographical locales, if you will, was with bread and wine. His body, the bread, his blood, the wine. This is our God. And if you know him, and I, I, I know many of you personally, and I know you know the Lord, um, would you just take some time to allow the ultimate king to minister to you? If you're in a trial, or maybe you're not right now, just let his strength be yours. Refresh yourself in the Lord. It's not just about the elements. We all know that. They're, they're really symbolic. It's about his presence. It's about remembering what he did for you, how much he loved you to secure your place. 
If you're not a Christian today, can I just encourage you, become one now. Don't wait another moment to be saved. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his death on the cross for you, his resurrection from the dead, and you will be saved. And you can come to this table and know him and know his promises.